Thank you, team, for powerfully preparing us this morning to open God's Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd ask you to take them and turn in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 57 through chapter 2810. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles this morning, it's on page 833. 833. Matthew chapter 27, 57 through 28, 10. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled away a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, The nation of Israel had many times when they were attacked by nations outside of their own walls. We know of the Assyrian captivity, we know of the Babylonian captivity, and we know of the Persians who came and attacked the Israelites in the Old Testament. 
And when they would come and when they would surround the cities, the generals of these armies and soldiers, they would antagonize the God of the Israelites. They would say, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Perhaps he's asleep. Maybe, maybe your God's abandoned you. Or perhaps he's off somewhere relieving himself. These were the words that they would say to the people inside of the walls to intimidate them before they were defeated. Never considering that these temporary victories were all part of God's final plan. His final perfect victory. You see, the kings of all these men, the kings of all these armies... The men who would surround the Israelites and take them captive, their king was death. All of them would die. And friends, it wouldn't be long before our king would stand outside of his grave and taunt death, saying, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? And as we walk through our text together this morning we'll see that there was nothing in heaven and there was nothing on earth that could thwart God's final victory over sin and death. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be here gathered in your house to celebrate this momentous day throughout the history of your people. Every time something significant happened, your word, your law was a part of it. And so, Father, we break your word open together as a body of Christ today. And we look at your word knowing that you intend to use it to change us. It is powerful. As we serve a risen Savior, so do we abide by the words that are in this living testament. And so, Father, would you move among us today? Change our hearts, change our minds. Help us to leave this place motivated to grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for those who you place in our pathways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the evening following the crucifixion, and we meet this man. He's a new man to us. His name is Joseph of Arimathea, and he's a rich man. And it's, it's peculiar that we meet this man because Jesus had taught about how difficult it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I haven't done much sewing, but I've seen the head of one of those needles, and that sounds difficult. But somehow, by God's good grace, here's Joseph who had made his way through the eye of this needle and found himself within the grip of God. This is our first time meeting Joseph. And in our first encounter with him in these Gospels, we find that he is a man with great purpose. And in this scene, he is a man motivated by love. What an odd request that he confronts Pilate with. You see, it wasn't normal in Roman culture for a man who had been crucified as a criminal to have a burial. 
a proper burial. That wasn't normally a request that would have been made. It was odd. And so the fact that, that Pilate would even allow this to happen under his jurisdiction may indicate for us a few realities. Perhaps Pilate was at the point of great turmoil regarding what had happened in the past days. Perhaps he was ready to be rid of this body, moving on from the difficult part he played in the death of Christ. Or perhaps he recognized that Christ's death was different than the death of most convicted criminals. You see, people who were crucified in those days, normally they would hang on the cross for a number of days until they actually passed away. But you remember the scene from John chapter 19, verses 31 to 33. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He was not hanging on the cross as long as most common criminals did. This death was different. His bones would not be broken like the bones of the common criminals that hung beside him. At this point, Jesus had already given up his spirit. His death was quickened. His crucifixion was different. And so perhaps with the understanding of these realities in mind, Pilate releases the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. He releases the jurisdiction of his body to Joseph. Now Joseph would have legal authority to remove Jesus' body from the cross. And he goes and he takes his body. And then, and then he does something that is a little bit symbolic, I believe. It's, it's very interesting. Yes, it was normal, but it bespeaks of the finality that's drenched in this moment. And think back for a second with me to the celebration of Jesus' birth. Mary gives birth to Jesus. She's uh, in this stable. There is a manger there. And what does she do? She takes Jesus and she does what? She wraps him in swaddling cloths. And here we are, just as it began. Now as it ends, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, is preparing the body of Jesus, wrapping him in ceremonial linen shrouds and cloth. But Joseph is not alone as he does this work. You know, this account in Matthew, it, it shows us that just Joseph is there. But if we read the account of John, there is another figure here, and it's a peculiar figure. It's, it's one that should cause us to reflect on the true graces and mercies wrought by God. We know who that figure is? In the account of John, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is here. Yes, friends, the very Nicodemus that came to Jesus in the dark of night in John chapter 3, he is here helping prepare Jesus' body for burial. 
verses 39 and 40 through 42 of John 19, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, I've lifted 75 pounds of weight room equipment before, but never 75 pounds of perfume. Ladies, I hope not. (laughs) That's a lot. I'd be sneezing up here today. (laughs) They took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the burial custom was of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so here this curious religious leader who came at night to Jesus to ask him questions would now come by night again to help prepare his body for burial. The greatest act in all of human history, Nicodemus, is a part of it. The man to whom Jesus gave an exposition regarding death and life would soon witness the greatest evidence of Jesus' abundant life-giving power. And so the greatest king, the greatest king ever to walk the face of this earth, ever to exist, the Alpha, the Omega, King Jesus, would be laid like the kings of Israel who had gone before him. So Joseph, he'd prepared a tomb. He cut into this rock. He was a rich man. He had the money and the wherewithal to do this. And he prepared to lay Jesus as the former kings of Israel had been laid. This is 2 Chronicles 16, 14, referring to King Asa's burial. In verse 14, they buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. This was the way that it happened. In a similar way to that of King Asa, Jesus was laid to rest, but Jesus was a much greater king. There would be something vastly different about Jesus' burial than the burial of the kings that went before him. And so a great stone is rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And just as the rich man Joseph of Arimathea came, so does he leave now in this portion of our text. And he's left at the tomb, Jesus' body, with Mary Magdalene, whom herself had experienced the great love of Jesus, along with the other Mary. And just as there was this group of people who were motivated by love in this moment to care for the body of Jesus, so was there another group of people that were motivated by more nefarious intentions. Look down at verses 62 to 66 of your text at this other group that had gathered. The next day, that is, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. 
and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing the the stone and setting a guard. And so what do we have here? The chief priests and the Pharisees, they've gathered before Pilate. And isn't it interesting in this entire account how Pilate looks like a pawn? He's a pawn in the hands of the Roman Empire. He's a a pawn in the hands of the religious establishment. He's doing whatever he can to keep himself out of trouble. Amazing. He's conquered. He's indifferent. And the Pharisees are proving to him that Jesus' words, even from the grave, are driving as nails upon their hearts. Imposter. Fraud. They called Jesus. They're terrified, friends. They are terrified. Remember the words that Jesus, that they had spoken to Jesus earlier, demanding a sign from him. This is Matthew 28. The scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now watch. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isn't it amazing that for a man who these people considered to be an imposter and fraud, somehow, even after death, his words are still proving to have an influence on their behaviors and their attitudes. If someone's an imposter and someone's a fraud, when they die, who cares? It doesn't matter anymore. You shouldn't be motivated by fear to do all of these things by the works of your hand to try to keep the person in the tomb. But you see, they were terrified that he was truly who he said he was. Motivated by their fear, by their hatred, by the wrath of the religious leaders, they asked for the tomb to be made secure by force and the presence of Roman soldiers. And what do they say? Lest the disciples come at night and steal the body of Jesus away. Surely the schemes of the disciples would have been no match for the power of the Roman military. Surely not. Pilate again appearing defeated and wanting this entire event behind him, says, take your security detail and go. Friends, all of the power of the Roman Empire, all of the scheming of the Jewish religious establishment, every while of the devil stood no chance in holding Jesus captive in that tomb. Not a chance. And so this group of individuals go to the tomb of Jesus in order to make it as secure as they can. Is man able to thwart the plans and purposes of a sovereign and powerful God? And they take two actions. And these are powerful actions in human terms. 
the first action that they take is they seal the stone. Now, what does that mean? The stone was rolled across the tomb, and they, they would have taken a long cord, and they would have stretched that cord across the stone. And on either end of the cord, they would have sealed it with wax, uh, a statement of authority of Pilate's rule. By Pilate's rule, no one was to break the seal of this tomb. And then some scholars even believe that they would have taken some kind of clay or wax and sealed around the outside of the stone as well, locking it in place in front of the tomb. Fastened with wax or clay, it represented the permanence of the stone's placement. The idea, friends, is that with these seals, the stone would be impossible to move. Legally and physically. So that's the first action. The second action is they take this group of Roman guards that they had been given and they place them outside of the tomb in front of the stone. And we will soon be powerfully reminded that even the wrath of man has been prepared of God as an opportunity for His glory. The wrath of man shall praise Him. Psalm chapter 76, verse 10. How encouraging is this today for us, church? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. And so the words of Joseph echoes in our minds. What you intended for evil, God used for good. And here again, what was intended for evil to keep Jesus in the tomb, to keep the disciples from quote-unquote stealing the body, God intended for good. And so now we witness the power of God in verses 1-4 to of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It's dawn on the first day of the week. The two Marys come back to inspect the tomb of Jesus, and on their way there, there is a magnificent earthquake. Because when God puts death asunder, the earth is changed forever. Forever. It would never be the same, friends. Death had been defeated. And much like how we see in the birth of Jesus that it was announced by the heavenly host, so too now in the re resurrection of Jesus would we see it announced by agents from the heavens. He was radiant, bright like lightning in appearance, yet His clothing white as snow. And friends, this is one of my favorite moments of the resurrection account. I love it. All of the work that man had done to seal the tomb. Some even with good intent, right? Joseph's intent was good. Wrap the body of Jesus, Nicodemus, prepare it. All of this work that had been done with good intent, with evil intent, 
All of this work represented by this stone that lay in front of the tomb that was supposed to represent the finality of death. And while the hands of men rolled the stone that laid in front of Lazarus' tomb away, it would be the hand of God that would remove the stone that sealed Jesus' tomb. I love it. The angel of the Lord descends. He rolls back the stone and he sits on it. He sits on it. Now I like to pause there just for a little editorial comment. I would have liked if he danced a little jig on top of it first. Just to kind of say, hey look, look, look at what God did. Right? This is a moment of great power and great authority. Sin and death are defeated. He simply sat on the stone. Placed his hindquarters right on top of it. (laughs) Sin and death right under there. The guards, they're terrified. They are terrified. These are Roman soldiers. These are not weaklings. There was a garrison right nearby. These were seasoned men of war. They were strong. They were mighty in your presence. If you were in their presence, you would have been terrified. That's the kind of respect and honor that they commanded. But in the face of God, isn't it amazing that even from within the tomb, Jesus had ability to conquer Caesar. From within the tomb. Friends, not one person is able to stand in the presence and power of God without great fear and trembling. And now what follows is perhaps the most foundational message in all of Christianity. The message that follows, friends, is either entirely true or all of Christianity is a gigantic hoax. The Apostle Paul's message is clear and resounding in Corinthians 15. If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. Examine with me the powerful message given in verses 5 to 7 here to the women who had come to Jesus' tomb. Verses 5 to 7. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. There's a lot of parallels here, friends, between the accounts of Jesus' birth and the accounts of his resurrection. And Mary's, the Marys who came to the tomb, they respond much in the same way that the shepherds did. When they were confronted by the heavenly host, she's afraid. They are in great fear. And the angel quickly encourages them. He knows who they seek. And he knows the one that they seek is no longer among the dead. He's counted with the living. And friends, verse 6, for church today. And when I talk about church, I mean us, the people, not a building. For us, friends, what unites us, what motivates us, what empowers us, encourages us, what enriches us, what gives us great hope in the darkest of days, and what proves God's faithfulness in the greatest storms is what we see in verse 6. 
this verse should nourish our souls every day. All of the hope and glory of Jesus revealed in this one resounding angelic statement. Look down at verse 6. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Friends, in just this one single verse, there are five powerful statements. The first is the statement of His presence. He is not here. He's not here. How hopeful. Imagine if you had a a scheduled meeting to go meet with a person and you got there and they were not there. In most cases, you might get upset, a little angry, right? Where's this person? What's going on? But in this case, it's exciting and motivating because the women immediately knew that Jesus indeed was who he said he was. He is not here. The second is a statement of his power. He has risen. He is risen. Why is that a statement of power? Because only Jesus is able to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. It's a statement of power. The third is a statement of His faithfulness. As He said. Remember early in the book of John, Jesus was confronting the religious leaders and He was talking to them about the temple. And He said, what did He say? Destroy this temple. Talking about His body. And in three days, I will raise it back up. Jesus was who He said He was. And the testimony of God throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, the testimony of God in our lives, His faithfulness is evidence that He is who He says He is. A promise-keeping, powerful God who's able to take us through the deepest valleys and go with us on the highest mountaintops. How about the fourth statement? It's a statement of invitation to come. Isn't that beautiful? Don't just take my word for it. Come. Statement of invitation. And and finally, the fifth statement is the evidence. See the place where He lay, implying that indeed it was empty. He was no longer there. And and then we get a glimpse in in John chapter 4, just like the woman at the well who was completely transformed by her encounter with Jesus. Remember what she had to do? She had to go back and say to everybody, come and see. Come and see. These women are given a similar invitation by the angel. Come and see. And there's something beautiful here, friends. Jesus uses all kinds of people. At the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus was announced to men who were watching their flocks in the fields. These were shepherds. But the resurrection of Jesus announced to women who had come to care for Him at His tomb. It's beautiful. Physically, they witness with their eyes that indeed He's missing and they're instructed to go to the other disciples and tell them that Jesus is. Has risen. At this point, Jesus had already set off towards Galilee, the wonderful place where much of his ministry had been centered. Look down at verses 8 to 10 to see the testimony of our resurrected Jesus. 
verses 8 to 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. There's not a moment to waste. The women leave the tomb motivated by great fear and by great joy. And friends, as we sit here today as a church, as a body of Christ, those are great motivations for us to live by. Great fear and great joy. They run to obey the commandment they had been given. It's not just a trot or a saunter. They're taking off to share this good news. And on the way, what a beautiful encounter. Jesus meets them on the way. And what does he say to them? Greetings. Like, you should expect to see me. Like, why are you surprised? Greetings, here I am. And, and I love the response. Imagine in the moment the tears and the emotions of these women who had cared so deeply for Jesus, who mourned as he hung on the cross. And on their way to see him, he, he, he meets them and says, Greetings. And what do they do? They fall before him. And in a moment that affirms the physical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, what do they do? They grab hold of his real physical feet. He was there. He was not a ghost, friends, not an apparition, not some spirit that you could put your hand or arm through. He wasn't transparent. He was physically there. And they fall down and they take hold of His feet. They're holding the very feet of Jesus in humility and in worship. Isn't it amazing? At the feet of Jesus, do you remember Mary's story? At the feet of Jesus, she was taught the things of God and learned from Him. At the feet of Jesus, Mary anointed Him with perfume and washed His feet with her hair. And now at the feet of Jesus, after the resurrection, Mary would fall before Him, grab hold of His feet, and worship Him as the risen Savior. Oh, friends, that Mary's example would resonate with us today. To be found with this kind of humility at the feet of Jesus, desperate to learn, desperate to praise, desperate to worship, clinging to Him in both our greatest moments of fear and our greatest exhilarations of joy. He's more than enough to hold on to in all of those times. And I love Jesus' instruction. Do not fear. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is always so gentle with the women. Always. Calling them to go and inform. Look at what he says. My brothers. What a glorious command. What a glorious phrase for his disciples. From the men that, that would have united with him. That would have gone through battle with him. That would be with him through thick and thin. When he's risen from the dead. He tells the women go and tell my brothers. Alluding back to Psalm chapter 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify and stand in all of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. Look at this last line. May your hearts live forever. Indeed, that was the reality. And that is the reality for all of us who are here that know Jesus to be our personal Lord and Savior. And Hebrews chapter 2, that is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Friends, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, those of us who sit here today and who know him. And friends, we have great hope this morning because he has risen, so too has he promised to raise us up with him. And because He has had the power to defeat sin and death, so too does He give us the power to overwhelmingly conquer in our daily lives. How should our lives look in light of these realities as our team comes this morning to lead us in a final song of great praise to our King? Friends, as we sit here today, we should be motivated by great thankfulness, great love, and great joy for the risen Savior that we serve. And might we sing about Him one more time this morning before we close. Lord, we pray that that would be the reality of our hearts this morning as we go, that You indeed would be our living hope. We are so thankful that You have broken the chains of sin and death and set us free. Lord, we worship you, our risen Savior, today. Might you be with us around our tables in the times that we have with our families and friends. And might we be so thankful for the great work of your Son, Jesus, on the cross, on our